Good evening and welcome to Proverbs. Uh, my name is Doug Taylor. Very glad to have you here with us tonight. And before we get started, I want to check and see if there are any questions left over from uh, last classes that we've had or anything that's come up in between that you want to make sure that we cover off tonight. <clears throat> Otherwise, I would like to digress for just a little bit and talk about a slightly different subject. Um, it's been said, and I think Rabbi Chait was the one that I heard this from, that when you run across a particular area uh, that uh, involves learning, you should explore it and take advantage of it while it's fresh in front of you. <clears throat> I'd like to share with you some ideas that were given over by Rabbi Moskowitz at a shear that he gave on October 25th. And they came about because just a little over a week ago, a 13-year-old boy passed away in the local Jewish community here. Uh, although I did not know him, I knew his father, and do know his father, and I'm sure you can imagine uh, that losing a son is a very difficult tra tragedy for uh, his father, his mother, uh, their whole family, uh, and the entire community. Uh, the boy was well known at school, and so as a result of that, Rabbi Moskowitz uh, had to talk with the students about how to deal with a tragedy like this. And an important source that we find in the Torah around this is the book of Job. Uh, you're undoubtedly familiar with the story. Uh, Job was a very wealthy man. He had children. Uh, he had lots of wealth uh, in the way that it was judged in that time. And he had an unbelievable tragedy happen to him. He lost his wealth. He lost his children. And he was put in a situation where he was in great physical pain. <clears throat> he had boils and apparently blisters, and it was just in, in great, great discomfort. So, in the book of Job, he has a question about God's justice. Now, one of the things that we learn from this right off the bat is that when we're in terrible pain, we can get above the pain in order to be able to work through the problem. That's a, a characteristic of man, that man can get above the pain that he's going through to observe and analyze the problem that he's facing. And Job had a conflict with his religious emotion, uh, and he had to deal with the conflict. And it wouldn't be difficult to, uh, to imagine. Uh, I mean, here Job is living a, you know, a good life uh, and doing what, as far as he can tell, are all the right things. <clears throat> and... Um, and yet he encounters all this terrible tragedy. And interestingly, uh, at the beginning of the book of Job, uh, the book describes him as a faultless and upright man who feared Hashem and avoided sin. And I'm taking that trans proximate translation from uh, The Living Knock by Mosnane Publishing Corporation, or published by them. A faultless and upright man who feared Hashem and avoided sin. Uh, and welcome, Naomi. Glad you're, uh, glad you're here. 
Uh, and Jim, uh, James, welcome to you as well. It's interesting to note in the book of Job that at the beginning, Job is not defined as a wise man. He's defined as, or described as a faultless and upright man who feared Hashem and avoided sin. So Rabbi Moskowitz wants to say that conflict is there to tell us to investigate our emotions, just like pain tells us that we need to go to the doctor. It's like a signal, you know, when you feel pain, you know, gee, I need to go to the doctor. Now, if it's just like, okay, I overexercised and my muscles feel sore for a few days, then I might not need to go to the doctor for that. But if it's some unusual thing that I've never felt before, uh, the kind of pain that clearly is an indicator that something is wrong, then there's a signal. I need to go see the doctor. When we have a conflict, it's a signal for us to investigate our emotions. And the first thing we want to do is investigate that on a conscious level. And if that doesn't work, then we may need to go to a professional and deal with the unconscious. So pain should be used as a tool for growth. And it can be said that sadness is a normal thing. I mean, when you have a loss, people feel sad. You feel sad. That's, that's normal. But conflict we have to deal with. And so whatever causes us conflict is a means for development and growth. Now, it'd be easy to see that, well, pain is just a nuisance or something worse, or we can see it as an opportunity. And I'll suggest that pain is there to tell us something. Now, a key point. We cannot know why God does anything. We cannot know why God does anything. I mean, to do that, we would have to be God. All we can say is that the pain that we're experiencing in a given moment is a benefit. It's there to help me develop or as a way to protect myself. So when supposedly bad things happen to supposedly good people, there's no point in dwelling uh, on the why because we can't know that. I mean, we speculate all the time about that, but we can't know. Now, sadness is a natural expression when something goes wrong or when we experience a loss, and there's nothing wrong with feeling sad in those cases. So let's just consider that we have two types of potential conflicts. One is a conflict with reality, a situation where it doesn't seem fair and where we could ask, well, where is God's justice in this situation? You know, 13-year-old boy dies, where is God's justice in this? The second kind of conflict is an inner conflict between our animalistic desires and our rational mind, where maybe we want to do one thing, but we know another thing is the appropriate thing to do. So for either type, we should explore the conflict as best we can. Again, the pain or the discomfort is a means for development, so it should be a learning experience to help us develop. So that's the first step in this. Um, and Naomi, you've asked, if I understand the question, do emotions lead to sadness? Well, if we, if we have a loss, then this, the emotion of sadness is a natural one to have. 
doesn't make it wrong, doesn't make it bad, doesn't mean we shouldn't have it. Uh, it's just a natural emotion, particularly if we lose a loved one, uh, someone close to us. We're naturally going to feel sad. The conflict would come where if I start questioning God's, or I feel like, wait a minute, God, that's not just. I'm starting to question reality there. Why should that happen? That's not fair. Or something like that. Now I have a conflict. Okay? Doesn't mean that having that is a bad thing. It just means that I need to recognize, okay, I've got that conflict, and now I'm going to have to do something about it. Okay, so now let's take the second step. Um, there was a king in Judah uh, that you are uh, no doubt familiar with named Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was supposed to die and he prayed to God and God extended his life. I recall by 15 years. And this is covered in uh, the book of 2 Kings. Now, he was also at war, and he prayed, and he was successful. Now, the king of Babylon heard about this, and the king wanted to talk to Hezekiah about it. Now, think about this. I mean, you know, you're, you're living uh, a life supposedly centered around Torah, and this king of another great land hears about the things that are happening to you, and wants to come and talk to you about it. I mean, imagine the opportunity to share ideas of Torah and teach someone, uh, and potentially a whole nation, because you're talking to the king, about Hashem. But King Hezekiah showed the king of Babylon his treasure house, his gold and silver and all that stuff. And he is criticized as a result of that. So, what can we learn from that? A person's feeling of success can be his downfall. You have to be careful when you start feeling successful. You can start to make incorrect decisions with very serious consequences. We can only look at a particular act as to whether it's just or unjust. Okay, we can't tell whether something is good or not. We don't know what the benefits might be, and we really don't know what God's plan is. Sometimes people say, oh, well, this and this happened, so I can see this is in accordance with God's plan. Well, that's a very slippery slope to go down, because that presumes we know what God's plan is. And we have to be careful about that. It's a very interesting story. Uh, that I think we covered in the fundamentals class, a story about a farmer uh, who has a horse, just one, and he uses the horse to plow the field. And one day the horse runs away. And the townspeople all say to the farmer, oh man, that's really bad luck. What a, what a terrible thing to have happen. And the farmer was a very wise fellow, and he said, well, good bad, it's kind of hard to say. And the next day, the horse comes trotting back into the field and into the barn, leading with it 
five wild mares. And the townspeople say, wow, what incredibly good fortune. You got five new horses. What a great thing. And the farmer says, well, good, bad, it's kind of hard to say. And a couple days later, the farmer's young son is trying to break one of the wild mares, and it throws him. And as a result of the fall, the young boy breaks his leg. And the townspeople say, oh, what terrible bad luck. That's really bad misfortune. And the farmer says, well, good, bad, it's kind of hard to say. And two weeks later, while the boy's recovering, the, town, the uh, army comes through the town drafting all the young men to go off to war. But they leave the farmer's son because his leg is broken. So is it good or is it bad? Or is it perhaps kind of hard to say? If we trust in God, we can't really tell whether something is good or bad until our life is completely over. Because we don't know the effect and all the pieces and all the impacts of what will happen. So all we can do is look at the situation and investigate it. I mean, we have a responsibility to investigate and try to find answers, but insofar as determining what is good or bad ultimately, that we can't know. Okay? Any questions on that point? Okay, good. Thanks, Naomi. So let's look at a related point. And this is based on an interpretation that was given by Rabbi Chait. At the very beginning of Moses' career, if you will, he's told by God to go on a mission. And he had seven questions. God answered six of them, but the last question just indicated that Moses didn't really want to go on the mission. And then God got angry with him. Then... Moses was faced with a situation where he was on a mission and he had to do a bris, a circumcision. Now he thought that the mission he had been given was more important. God was saying to him that you can't make a decision on the mission, all you can do is make correct actions. And there would have been apparently a real catastrophe if his wife Zipporah hadn't stepped in and uh, conducted the circumcision. So Moses kind of got apparently hung up on the mission and uh, what was important was the correct action. You also recall that Moses didn't get to go into the promised land. Why? He was supposed to, I recall, speak to a rock and uh, water would come out. But he hit the rock, and for that whole situation, he was punished. His mission wasn't the most important thing in the world. At that moment, it was about correct actions. So, the point here is that you can't get too focused on achieving a particular result. The question at any moment is, am I doing the correct action? Okay, Rabbi Moskowitz once shared with me uh, the idea that 
you know, in any given situation, there's only one real question you should ask yourself. And that was, did I do the right thing? You know, we don't control the end results. All we can do is take correct actions at any moment. Okay? And we certainly need to be involved in investigation and looking at situations. Our investigation of life needs to go uh, in this order. First, we need to investigate halacha, Torah law, find out what we're responsible for. And then we investigate uh, Proverbs and learn, like we're doing now, and learn about ideas of everyday life. And then we can get into an investigation of God's personal providence and how we can get it to work for us. You do have the right to use the system to your benefit. And if you know the system and you understand it, you can use it to your benefit. If you think about the Wright brothers, um, they used the atmospheric system to their benefit. And the same is true with the system of God's personal providence. In the book of 1 Samuel, we find a very interesting story of Hannah, who prayed for a child and was just adamant about it. If you're not familiar with the story, it's well worth reading. It's at the beginning of 1 Samuel. Uh, she had a husband who had another wife, and the other wife was having children, but Hannah wasn't having children, and she really, really wanted one. And she prayed for a child, uh, and uh, the, the prayer that she gave is one that's analyzed very carefully uh, to understand how we should pray. Now, an interesting point uh, let me digress. Uh, you have probably read in the Torah um, about the idea of sota. Um, and let me pause here. Pamela, you said uh, it was something else. I wasn't quite sure what that's referring to. Can you elaborate just a little bit? And in the meantime, I'll... Uh, well, let me pause here because it looks like you're writing something. Ah, you heard an audio about the uh, story of Hannah. Okay. So, there is this concept of a sota, which is when a man suspects that his wife has been unfaithful, and you've probably read this in the Torah, he can take her before the priest, and the priest will... Uh, give her uh, some special water and if she has been unfaithful then she dies a very horrible death. Uh, it describes that her uh, innards rupture and it's apparently uh, not a pleasant, pleasant thing. On the other hand, if she hasn't been unfaithful to her husband, then she is, uh, she will become pregnant and have a child, and her husband, you know, keeps her as his wife. So, apparently, uh, what Hannah did was pray to God and say, Look, I really want a child, and if you don't give me a child, 
then I'm going to go closet myself away with someone who's not my husband. And I won't have relations with him, but because I'm closeted away, then I will be suspect and I'll be brought before the priest and he'll feed me this water and I will be found not guilty and then I'll become pregnant because that's what your Torah says. And she didn't actually end up going through that process. She did become pregnant and have a child. But Rabbi Moskowitz has pointed out that she was using the system to her benefit. She's basically saying, God, you set this thing up, and so I'm going to take advantage of it because I really want a child and I'm unable to get pregnant. So she's able to use the system uh, to her benefit. Uh, okay, good, Pamela, thank you. Uh, we were talking about Moses there, not Tommy. So, when a person starts by relating to God emotionally, that's a good start, but ultimately we have to move to relating to God through ideas. Um, and we can do things for our own benefit. For example, when we discuss Torah with people, our job is not to win people over. So that would be getting this sort of idea of mission. It's all I really want to do when I talk to someone about Torah is to let them have a good experience with Torah. Uh, it's not my job to win people over. It's just to let them have a good experience with Torah and to see the beauty of the ideas uh, and have an enjoyable experience. Better yet, I could just have a discussion to be selfish, albeit intelligently selfish, because I know the discussion will benefit me. And I don't even need to worry about the other guy. I mean, I'll get something out of the discussion if I discuss Torah with someone. So the point here is to focus on correct actions, not the achievement necessarily of a particular mission. Okay? Okay. So, uh, Naomi Good, thank you for that, uh, for that information. Uh, Naomi's pointing out that this uh, custom is still practiced in India, but the priest um, kills the woman. Uh, and I'm assuming, uh, is they, Naomi, that that is uh, not within the Jewish community, but in some other religious approach. Would that be correct? Because in the Torah approach, it's a miracle through the action of the water. Uh, yeah, okay, the Hindus. Okay, and they're Hindu tribes. Okay. Yeah, in the, in the Torah approach, it's a miracle done by God through the action of the water itself. Okay, so that's the second step. Not to be focused on correct actions, uh, or on, but, excuse me, to focus on correct actions, not the achievement necessarily of a particular mission. Okay, one more step in this. The young boy died at age 13. Uh, he was bar mitzvahed on Sunday, and he died the following Thursday. Now, there is a statement, uh, of, I think in the Talmud of the Sages, that someone who is pure and hasn't learned Torah yet, God teaches him. So, if we think about a young boy who's in a hospital, and he's 13 on Sunday and dies the following Thursday, uh, I mean, he becomes halakhically responsible at age 13. So, uh, we've got a situation there where uh, 
from a, a Torah teaching standpoint, he's in good shape. He's got the best teacher there is. The mourning when we lose someone is for the people that we miss. It's not for the person themselves. Dying is not necessarily a tragedy. But we have emotions around that, and we have to deal with them. So the correct approach is to recognize that I lost someone, okay, and I have emotions, I have sadness around that. It might even awaken my own fears of mortality, and that would be a conflict that I have to deal with. But importantly here, the mourning process is for, for us, the people who lost someone, not for the dead, because dying might be a good thing. I mean, suppose there's a person that's not pure. Uh, let's say we know he's a bad person and he did bad things and then he died. Yet, we still don't know all the factors at play there. I mean, his life could have been utterly miserable. So we still don't know that it's a bad thing that he died. Now, there's a statement of the sages that it's better to be in mourning than in the house of pleasure. Better to be in the house of mourning than in the house of pleasure. Why is that? Because that's the opposite of the way that people would generally think. I mean, if you had to choose between going to a party and a funeral, I'd guess most people would rather go to the party. But when there's pain, it forces you to deal with reality. When you're in a party, that can mask reality. The conflict in the pain forces us to deal with it. And by conflict, I'm talking about emotional pain here, not physical pain. For physical pain, you go see a doctor. But the conflict around the funeral and having to deal with reality and maybe deal with the, the recognition of my own mortality and the fact that you know we're all headed there, that conflict can bring up emotional pain that I have to deal with. And that emotional pain is for, can be a benefit for my soul, for my development, if I investigate it and I deal with it. Now, it's important to make a distinction here. The pain isn't the good. The pain is a means to reality if we do the investigation. And it's the getting closer to reality that's the good part. Okay? And Pamela, yes, I mean, people, you can find, you can get closer to God through the mourning process if you use that as uh, a, an investigation of reality, an investigation of the conflicts uh, that we might have as a result. So, now, let's carry this a little bit further. Sometimes we're in a lot of pain, a lot of psychic pain, emotional pain, and we have wrong ideas about God. Maybe we hate God as a result. You know, if you were to lose someone incredibly close to you, it would be uh, not unreasonable for somebody to wonder, well, where is God's justice in that, and want to hate God as a result. Or maybe pain, the pain awakens certain superstitions that we might have. You know, we're looking for any possible way out of the situation. Interestingly, the sages ask, how do you love God? I mean, love needs an object, and God is not physical. And the same thing is true with hate. You can't really hate God. 
because God's not physical. Now, if we look at all the inhabitants of the earth, they all have idolatry, generally. Uh, and there are lots of religions, but they generally attach to the physical. Idolatry comes from the emotional part of the human. So, if you hate God, that's not the real God. That's the emotional God that you created. You're not really hating the real creator. You're hating this emotional idea that you created. So, if you know the truth, and you recognize the truth, and at the same time, the pain is so great that you hate God, Rabbi Moskowitz wants to say that's not a wrong thing, as long as you recognize what's going on. I mean, it is a very high level to totally let go of these emotions. Uh, the lower level of a tzaddik, a righteous person, is a righteous person in conflict. So you shouldn't condemn yourself for having those kinds of feelings. Rather, you should let them out so that you can deal with them. In other words, we don't want to hide and pretend in these kinds of processes. We want to be honest and realistic with ourselves uh, about what's actually happening. So, to summarize, step one is about recognizing that conflicts are a signal for us to investigate our emotions and we must simultaneously recognize that we can't know why God does anything. We can recognize that the pain associated with it is somehow a benefit to us, but we can't know the why. Step two is to recognize that we need to focus on correct actions at any given moment. That we can't necessarily control the outcomes or a mission that we're involved with. We can only take correct actions in the moment. And step three is recognizing that the mourning around the loss of someone or the loss of a thing, the loss of a job, loss of a house, or whatever it might be, it is for us. And we need to both recognize and accept when we're in conflict around that, not condemn ourselves for it, and use it as an opportunity for investigation, and that can help us uh, raise our level of understanding and knowledge. Okay, been talking for a while. Any questions about this? I felt that these ideas were very timely and appropriate, uh, given you know the events that transpired that led to them, and I thought they would be uh, hopefully worthwhile and helpful to share with you. Any questions I can answer on that? Okay, I'll take no response as a yes or as a no. Okay, let's go back to Proverbs. Uh, and we are at Proverbs chapter 11, verse 4. And let me hang on for just a second because it looks like Naomi's. Uh, writing something in Naomi of Morning House means literally, I'm not sure what, whether you are asking the question or if you're making a statement there.
Oh, should the house of mourning be taken literally? It's better to be in the house of mourning than in uh, the house of pleasure. I, I think it's meaning uh, in a place where mourning takes place. Uh, that's my interpretation. I'm, I don't have any inside knowledge on that, but I think when they talk about being in the house of mourning, uh, it would be in a in a home or a house where people are in mourning. And uh, you may be familiar with the um, uh, the custom for uh, or the halakha for close relatives uh, for the Jewish people that they do something called sit shiva uh, for seven days. So there's a seven day period when they set themselves aside, uh, and I think it's almost always done in in a home, usually their home, um, and people go to visit them and sit with them uh, during that designated mourning period. Um, and it's a time when, when you, you don't go in and make small talk. Uh, you, you go in and listen attentively to what the person in mourning wants to talk about and talk with them. Uh, maybe they want to talk about the person they lost, maybe they don't. Uh, and you follow their lead. Uh, but they do that for a period of seven days. Um, and it's true, uh, Naomi, the person also can be mourning individually. Uh, you're quite right. Um, and for, for a particular uh, loss, whatever uh, that loss might be. So I think when the, the sages talked about the house of mourning, they're using that as a, a metaphor for uh, either being around people who are <clears throat> involved in mourning or uh, someone being in mourning themselves. Okay, any other questions or comments about that? Okay, good, thanks. Okay, we are at Proverbs chapter 11, verse 4, and the verse reads, Wealth will not help on the day of destruction, and charity will save you from death. Wealth will not help on the day of destruction, and charity will save you from death. So, what are the questions that we might ask around that particular verse? Again, we're not yet going for answers. We're just trying to establish what are the questions that we need to answer in, in order to start our investigation on what King Solomon is trying to tell us here. Wealth will not help on the day of destruction, and charity will save you from death. What kinds of questions might we ask? Okay, Naomi, you've said, which wealth will not be available on that day? Okay. Alright. And Pamela, you're right. Other copies say the day of wrath, the day of destruction. I think we can interpret those to be uh, similar, and one of the questions we'll have to do is define what is a day of destruction or a day of wrath. What does that mean? Okay. Any other questions? Who's wrath? Okay, good. What does that mean? What's a day of wrath or a day of destruction? Alright, and let me pause, see if there are any others. Okay, 
Yes, Pamela Good, gods or mans? Whose wrath are we talking about? What destruction are we talking about? Or maybe it's both. Good, Naomi. So we're going to have to ask, what's a day of destruction? And then we're going to have to ask, why doesn't wealth help you then? And a key question, I think, will be, how does charity save you from death? I mean, that seems rather odd. Uh, first of all, everybody dies. And how does, how does charity save you from death? So, let's start with the question of what's a day of destruction? Or a day of wrath? Rabbi Moskowitz has said that it usually means catastrophe through the laws of nature. Something that's not in your hands. So, suppose your house is ruined by a tornado. Okay? Um, that might be considered a day of destruction or a day of wrath. Some natural event. Um, okay, and Pamela, you've mentioned untimely death. That's true. And there is a question, or there is a case where we can certainly say, wealth's not going to help you. I mean, if you have an untimely death, you know, you can't take it with you. Um, so, <clears throat> now, interestingly, if my house is ruined by a tornado, your wealth could help, because you can rebuild your house. I mean, if you don't have money, then you can't rebuild, and you really suffer. So it does seem that there are situations where the money really can help you. And it also seems that if you give away your money to charity, you won't have the money to be able to rebuild. So in one sense, we could look at the practical situation and say, well, wait a minute, real life doesn't operate the way this verse says. So how do we answer this? So let's consider the nature of wealth. All right, and Naomi, you've I think uh, hinted at the at an answer here. You mentioned physical destruction. Wealth, by its very nature, at least in the context that we're talking about here, is physical. Could be your house, could be your car, your gold, your silver, bank accounts. It's physical stuff in one form or another. And even in the case of, of monetary wealth that you keep in a, in a bank account, where it's just an entry on a piece of paper, what that is is basically something that you can uh, trade for things in the physical world. Now, if the day of destruction, the catastrophe, is large enough or expansive enough, all your physical treasures could be destroyed. All your wealth. And there are no guarantees in the physical world that that can't happen. So if the problem is small, then wealth could help you. I mean, if your car breaks down and you have enough money, you can just buy a new one. Or if your computer breaks and you can afford to get it repaired, or better yet, buy a new one, that's a very helpful thing. But if the nature of the catastrophe that happens on the day of destruction is such that it destroys your wealth with it, then wealth won't help you on that day. So, in the case of, you know, sickness and germs and war and earthquake and fire and so forth, wealth might help you rebuild, but at the moment of the catastrophe, when your life is in danger, 
the money isn't going to help you. Okay. All right. And Pamela, you brought up yeah, the Holocaust. Okay. Uh, and Naomi, swine flu. Yeah, there are some examples of things that at that moment, when they attack you, uh, you know, wealth isn't going to be able to help you. Now note that the verse does not say that wealth is bad or evil or wicked. It just says that it won't help you on the day of destruction. So, any questions there on the first half? Okay, let's talk about the second half. Charity will save you from death. According to Rabbi Moskowitz, Charity in the book of Proverbs means a certain personality. It's not talking about the physical act of making a monetary contribution to a charitable group. Charity in the book of Proverbs is a certain way of thinking. And we talked about this in an earlier verse. By recognizing that I need to give up part of my money and give it to others, I am reinforcing the idea that I am part of a bigger system, that I'm not the center of everything. What I'm teaching myself is that I'm just one part of a much larger system, the system of humanity and the system of justice. And that helps me get outside of myself and can ultimately help to change my outlook. Now, that way of thinking can help you in times of catastrophe. So how does that work? Charity has two interpretations, justice and kindness. In the case of justice, what that means is that you understand systems. And if you understand systems, then you know how to operate within those systems in the physical world. For example, Rabbi Moskowitz gave the example, you can swim with piranhas as long as, there no, as there's no blood, and you'll be fine. But if you have the least amount of blood coming out of your body somewhere, you're toast. Okay? They will gobble you up. So, by understanding God's systems, a person can know better how to act effectively in those systems, and that can help you during a time of catastrophe. Okay. Now, let me pause here. Um, Pamela, you're right. People do put confidence in their wealth. Um, and they put confidence in their wealth. Uh, and if we have time to get to the next verse, we'll touch on that. They put confidence in their wealth in the idea that people think that if you have money, you can do anything. But that's not really true. You certainly can do some things that uh, you may not be able to do without money, but if you put your confidence in that, that confidence can be very misplaced because the money cannot help you in certain situations. In every situation you will ever encounter in life, I submit to you that there is one thing that you need in order to be successful or that will give you the best chance of being successful, and that is knowledge. Money can help you in certain situations, but knowledge is what we need. And in this case, we're talking about the knowledge of God's systems when we look at charity from a justice standpoint. 
Okay. And Pamela, you said, is, is, it, is it exclusively monetary or a charitable nature? What we're talking about is, I, I guess you would say, a mindset. Uh, a, a personality that recognizes, um, not, not a charitable nature like, well, I'll give away money to everybody. Um, although being willing to give charity is a very important thing. But it's what's driving that that is important. The, the wise person that really understands charity understands that they are part of a system uh, and that they have an obligation as part of that system to help humanity. That is a different motivation than perhaps someone who has a lot of money and feels guilty about it and gives charity because they feel guilty about that money. Uh, we're talking about someone who sees how they fit into the system uh, that God created. Okay, and uh, Pamela, you mentioned there are other ways. I'm not sure what you're referring to there. Can you elaborate on that? Just want to make sure I'm not missing your point. Good constructions on matters. Um, I admit to not fully understanding what you're meaning there either. Uh, maybe you can give me a little, a little more uh, elaboration. Sorry if I'm, I'm not catching on quickly enough. Um, now, that's the justice angle. With regard to charity as kindness, what that means is that I truly understand another person's needs. So we're not talking about here the blind act of helping somebody across the street. We're talking about understanding another person so that I can help them in the best way possible. For example, suppose two kids get in trouble with their parents. And let's suppose that one of those kids is a rebellious child and one is, uh, has a completely different personality and is very scared of losing the parent's love. Now, a wise parent would deal with the rebellious one differently compared to the one who's scared of losing the love of the parent. Because real kindness requires that I have to know the psychology of the people involved and understand psychological systems. Okay, and how does that relate to a time of disaster? Well, suppose, for example, you were in a concentration camp. Now, in order to survive, you have to recognize the reality of the people you're dealing with and understand their psychology. You have to know how to answer them appropriately. Otherwise, you could die. But if you understand their psychology, then that can save you. So, it's that the idea of when it says... Charity saves from death. It's talking about having a personality that recognizes uh, one's place in the world and that you have an understanding of both justice and kindness. And it's the understanding of those systems, psychology and justice and the systems of the world and so forth, that's what can save you uh, from death. Money is a relatively small area of help. 
I mean, it can help you, but as we mentioned before, the fantasy of money is that you can do anything. Uh, and society tends to think that a person who has money can do anything. But when a tidal wave comes, doesn't matter whether the person standing on the beach is rich or poor. Uh, I mean, the tidal wave is going to take them out. So money has a place in a very practical way, and you know you can do good things with it practically. But the fantasy will take us away uh, beyond what money can really do. And so the verse is really showing us the fantasy of wealth. Uh, because it won't help us on uh, the day of disaster or destruction, but the mindset of someone who is charitable, who understands justice and kindness, that can save them from death. Okay, any questions on that verse? Okay, Pamela, you mentioned giving the benefit of the doubt. Thank you, that, that helps. Uh, and you mentioned Gladstone felt guilty as his father had become rich through the slave trade. Um, yeah, it's a very interesting question because if someone inherits a lot of money uh, that came about through uh, improper means, uh, then I think you'd have to do a real serious investigation as to what the appropriate thing is to do with regard to that money, uh, how one should use it and how one should proceed. So, very good point. Any other questions about that verse? Yes, Naomi, by giving charity we derive wisdom to escape wrath and destruction. And it's the, the understanding and the learning that we get through the giving of charity that uh, should be having that effect for us. What, what's an important point, and I'm glad you mentioned this, it's important for us to realize that it's not a magical thing. Um, it's not, well, if I, you know, give charity, something magical happens, so I'll somehow be protected like I'm wearing a, you know, a protective suit or something. What happens is it's the change that happens in me as a result of thinking through the charity and going against perhaps my natural inclination, which would be to hang on to all of my money, because, gee, isn't it mine, uh, and recognize uh, that there are other people out there who also need help and may be in difficult situations uh, through, you know, no fault of their own, but just uh, circumstances are such that, uh, you know, that's the way life is sometimes. And to recognize that I am just part of the greater humanity and that I have an obligation to... Uh, help those people with the resources I have, that changes the way I think and starts to get me out of being a very self-centered person and puts me in the realm of thinking in terms of justice and kindness. Okay, any other comments on that? Yes, Naomi, I think there are people who do treat it as sort of a magical and miraculous thing. And the way that uh, we've approached the book of Proverbs, and I'm following the guidance of my teacher, Rabbi Moskowitz, 
is that it is a very practical thing. And so when we look at these verses, we should be able to see practically in the real world how they work. Um, and not that there's some you know, magical thing uh, that's going on. And thank you, Naomi. Uh, and Pamela, you mentioned to receive for the benefit of others uh, rather than the self alone. Do you mean to say uh, when you are on the receiving end of, say, charity? Is that what you're getting at? Ah, okay. No, just one's resources. Right. Using one's resources for the benefit of others rather than just oneself. That is true. It's very easy to, uh, you know, look at what one has and what one receives in the way of income, uh, job, possessions we have, and say, well, this is all mine, I did this. But when we really look around, we have to ask what person actually develops everything, you know, all by themselves. I mean, I'm a product of the fact that I had parents who cared about me and gave me educational opportunities and uh, maybe people who opened certain doors and certain uh, uh, learning opportunities for me and, uh, you know, lots of different things that go on. Uh, some of which may be, you know, in, in one sense, pure chance. I mean, someone who happens to be in the right place at the right time in the financial markets uh, will find themselves, uh, you know, in a situation where they're uh, perhaps very wealthy. And it would be very tempting to say, you know, look at, look at what I did for myself. And yet, did they? Or, or was it just that they happened to be in the right place at the right time and you know, a bunch of other people who were working just as hard didn't fare as well. So, uh, it's, it's, it's very tempting to do that, but we have to recognize that we are all part of a society that's very intermingled. Uh, and, you know, even something as simple as a pencil is the product of so many different people and so many different processes and materials from different places all over the world coming together uh, in order to make that little writing implement that we use that we could you know buy for very little money uh, that it, it kind of is a reminder that we are all part of a very large system here um, and so recognizing that yes I have a place in it and there's nothing wrong with my enjoying my place and appreciating my place but recognizing that too, everybody else has a place too. Um, and the guy, you know, in front of me in traffic probably wants to get to his destination just as much as I want to get to mine. Uh, so, so uh, yeah, Naomi, you ask about the meaning of charity. It's, it's kind of a wider justice. Yes, it's, it's uh, a recognition uh, that you are part of a large system of humanity. 
and that God has set that system up uh, in a certain way, and that the world does not necessarily revolve around us, but that we have an obligation uh, as part of that system to turn around and help other people uh, and uh, provide for them when we can within the parameters that uh, the, the Torah suggests, um, which uh, if I recall is the giving of not less than 10% of our income and not more than 20%, uh, and uh, you know, making sure that we take into account kindness and justice uh, for other people. Um, so uh, it's, it's that mindset that can allow us then to see the world differently uh, and operate differently. Okay, any other questions or comments on that subject? Naomi, did I answer your question? Excellent, thank you. Uh, I have to, to uh, give great um, credit to my teachers, Rabbi Moskowitz and Rabbi Chait, uh, and others uh, who uh, opened great learning opportunities for me, and so it's, it's a, uh, a real privilege to be able to share with you um, some of the material that, uh, that they have taught to me. Uh, Pamela, you've asked, is it anything to do with the heavenly court? Not that I am aware of. Um, as far as I can tell, uh, the, uh, I mean, the heavenly court, uh, when a person is judged, certainly acts of charity, I think, would be considered uh, mitzvos and taken into account uh, in a positive way. Uh, so, you know, certainly that I, I would think that is going to be uh, a factor taken into account in the judgment of a person. Uh, but in terms of the context that we're talking about here, um, we're just talking about the practical impact of giving charity and having a changed mindset on one's ability to interact with the world uh, and protect a person from uh, untoward ends uh, in the event of a disaster. Okay, but certainly from everything I know, uh, charitable acts are uh, uh, a very positive thing when it comes to uh, the heavenly court. Yes, you're absolutely right, panel. It's a practical, probably a very practical book. Any other questions or comments? Okay, then uh, we'll stop here and we'll plan to meet together next week and continue on with uh, Proverbs 11 chapter, Proverbs chapter 11 verse 5. Uh, in the meantime, I wish you all a very good week and thank you so much for joining us.